fellow students, if you would open to Acts 4, we're going to finish up Acts 4 and open Acts 5 today, Lord willing. Let me just kind of set a little historical context. Jesus, as you recall, has ascended to heaven. Uh, we just went through the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Jesus went to heaven. Acts 2 reviews the coming of the Holy Spirit to live within every believer. Pre Peter preaches a sermon and tens of thousands of people Pilgrims have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and 3,000 of them respond on day one. We're now about several weeks into the birth of the church after the Holy Spirit came and we have about 20,000 new baby Christians in the church in the city of Jerusalem. Many of them are pilgrims who've come from hundreds of miles away to celebrate and there's really no place for them to go. They don't have a quality in or a Marriott and so they stay in homes and so the church the new church it really houses these folks and takes care of them loves on them and allows them to stay in town because there's only one church in the in the world and it's in Jerusalem so these folks if they're going to learn more about Jesus they need to stay in the city of Jerusalem and the description of this church begins in chapter 4 verse 32 and it really describes a very healthy uh, unified loving productive church if you would go to chapter 4 verse 32 and let's read together and the congregation of those who believed these are the new Christians were of one heart and one soul not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own but all things were common property to them and with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Four, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. You can underline that one if you want to be shocked. There was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed each as any had need. Okay, here's the principle. In the family of God... We is more important than me. In the family of God, we is more important than me. This church is one mind. They are united in their love for Jesus. They're physically, spiritually uh, praying for each other, worshiping together and meeting their financial needs as well. They're unified and unity always expresses itself in community, right? And the nature of community is that community shares and they are sharing with one another and encouraging one another and helping each other. Just so you know, this is not a description of communism or socialism. There is a vast difference between community and communism. Here's the difference. Communism says what's yours is mine and I'm going to seize it by force, right? Whether that's the rule of law or whether that's at the point of a gun or legislative stealing. But communism is selfish greed motivated by laziness generally. So communism says what's yours is mine. Community, spiritual community says what's mine is yours. You get the difference? A vast difference in what's mine is yours and I'm going to share it by giving and it's motivated by love. It's generosity motivated by love versus greed motivated by force. So there's a vast difference between socialism, which is usually man-centered, by force and community, spiritual community, which is motivated by love, which desires to share based on love. And that's what's happening here. So the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through the apostles. There's great power in the church. A lot of miracles going on as we've gone over. It also said there was great grace. Have you ever noticed 
I've been in churches where there wasn't unity. Have you ever noticed the spirit at Valley Baptist Church? That by and large, most everybody gets along. You ever wondered why that is? We're all sinful people. At least, you know, I'm at least as bad a sinner as I was back then, right? So what is it about this church family that causes people to get along? I think it's because at Valley Baptist Church, there's a passion from senior leadership down to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is what? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you put Jesus on the front of the stove, on the main burner, and keep the gospel as the focal point of why you're here and what you're about, one of the consequences, you don't have time to argue with each other about the color of the curtains or the carpet or whatever. I mean, stuff that it's peripheral. The central issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you get unity and you get love and you get caring. And that's what's going on in this first century church. And that's our model. So whenever there is a need, the church doesn't say, go sell some property and bring us the proceeds. The Holy Spirit does the prompting to people to sell something to meet that particular need. Now, by the way, this was a unique time in church history. This hasn't happened since then. This was a unique time. We had thousands of new Christians in town and the Holy Spirit prompted the existing members of the body to provide for their needs. An example of what loving generosity looks like is found in the next two verses. Chapter four, verse 36. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement. He owned a tract of land. He sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Luke is kind of giving you a specific example of someone who's living out loving generosity and caring that describes the entire church. Barnabas wasn't the only one who was doing that, but he's an example that Luke, the author, uses to illustrate that kind of loving unity that pervaded the early church. He's a Levite which is the tribe of the priests, right? So he's a priest in the, in, the, in the tribe of Levi. He was born on the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is about 250 miles northwest of Jerusalem in the Mediterranean Sea. It's the third largest island in the Mediterranean after Sardinia and Sicily. His birth name is Joseph. And what does it say his nickname is? And Barnabas means what? Son of encouragement. He's a son of a comfort. He's a son of encouragement. He's a son of consolation. If, if you had a problem, Barnabas was the guy to call because he was an encourager. And his characteristic trait was so much of an encourager, they changed his name to that. Interesting. You ever wonder how some people came to name their children the names they gave them? You ever looked in... Queenie, good to see you, my dear. Wondered about how that worked. You know, historically, some tribes, some Native American tribes, would not name a child until some central aspect of that child's character became evident. And then they would name the child in congruence with the character that was in that, children's, in that child's uh, uh, DNA. How many of you remember the movie Dances with Wolves? Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves was the name that the Native American tribe, I think it was the Sioux, gave Costner because they saw him what? Dancing with wolves. So they gave him the name. His female counterpart in the movie was a woman named Stands with a Fist. Right? I bet nobody messed with her kids. Stands with a fist, because that's when they first saw her, she was nine years old and she was standing with a fist and they, when they kidnapped her at that point. See, God names his children as well. 
You know, we ask that question, what's in a name? Jacob was given a new name by God after he wrestled all night long with Jesus. The name Jacob means supplanter or heel catcher. And Jacob lived up to that name the first part of his life because he was a liar, he was a deceiver, and he was a schemer. He was a taker. That's what Jacob was for a good chunk of his life. But after his wrestling match with Jesus all night long, God renamed him Israel. And Israel means? Anybody you know? He who prevails with God. He who prevails with God. Now that's a big name change from deceiver to he who prevails with God because God changed Jacob in that all-night wrestling match at that point. So Barnabas's name reflects his generous, encouraging character. James and John in the New Testament were named the sons of thunder, Boagenaris. You wonder what kind of a temperament they had if they're named the sons of thunder, right? And Judas was named the son of perdition. So here's the application question for you. What would your name be if it reflected your dominant character trait. If your name was not given to you until your parents and relatives saw your dominant character trait, they might not name you till eight years old or whatever, but what would your name be? You ever notice that some people are always complaining? Would we call them uh, Bellyache Brad or Garrett the Grumbler or Winifred the Whiner or George the Griper? It'd be interesting if you looked in the mirror and said, what are, what are the dominant character traits in my life and what would people call me based on how I typically and routinely and habitually behave? Barnabas was someone who saw a need and without fanfare, he generously sacrificed to meet it. He was an encourager by character and so they named him a character. He was sensitive to the needs of others. His name reflected his character. We're gonna hear a lot more about Barnabas's ministry in subsequent chapters. Now, in contrast to Barnabas, who illustrates loving generosity without ego, we have chapter 5. And the first 11 verses of chapter 5 should terrify you. You should walk away with this with a very strong sense of holy uh, awe. So let's jump into that. But a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and, verse 2, kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, anytime you see the word but and then there's a subjunctive phrase after that, it basically signals a contrast to the previous passage. So, in contrast to Barnabas, we have this coming example. Now, in the Bible, when characters are illustrated, they're illustrated either as warnings or examples. What's the difference between an example and a warning? Follow the example. So if there's an example in Scripture, God puts that there to say, do what they did. They're a good example, right? If there's a warning, don't do what they did, right? Don't follow their bad example. Barnabas is an example Ananias and Sapphira are warnings. Avoid their behavior. Now the name Ananias means the Lord is gracious. And the name Sapphira comes from Sapphire, a jewel stone, and it means beautiful. By the way, naming your child beautiful is pretty tough on the kid. It's pretty hard. It, 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 it's hard to be humble with a name like beautiful, right? 
So it's instructive, interestingly enough, that Barnabas lived up to his name, didn't he? Barnabas was, in fact, an encourager. Neither Ananias nor Sapphira lived up to the meaning of their names by their behavior. Apparently, the attention that Barnabas received for selflessly giving his gift filled Ananias and Sapphira with envy. They were going to try and compete with Barnabas. They wanted the human attention and praise that Barnabas had got, and they schemed to give a gift as a way to get the attention and the praise of people. Now, you need to understand that even though Ananias and Sapphira died in this example, they were believers. They were truly saved, right? Being saved does not make you immune from sin. Being saved does not make you immune from stupid, right? One of the characteristics of the Bible is its complete, honest transparency. God never covers up the sins of his people in the Bible. When you read the Bible, one of the things that should impress you is there's no whitewash. God presents his people, warts and all. The story is told of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was the Lord English protector during the English Civil War about 1650. He had his portrait painted. Now, Oliver Cromwell had several prominent warts on his face. And the, 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 the portrait painter photoshopped the portrait and removed the warts. So he had this nice face done with no warts. And Cromwell rejected the painting and said he wanted to be painted just like he was, warts and all. Right? So the Bible never photoshops people. When you see a portrait, a character sketch of a person in Scripture, it is utterly honest. Doggy breath, bad hair, everything, right? Warts and all. And that's one of the nice things about God. He's not impressed with human behavior. Verse 3. Here's the picture. Ananias and Sapphira have sold a piece of property for X dollars. They've brought the dollars or the money in front of Peter and they're going to donate it to the church and they expect the praise of the assembly, just like Barnabas got. That was what was motivating this gift. And Peter said in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price? Here's the principle. God hates hypocrisy because it misrepresents his character and deceives his people. God hates hypocrisy because it misrepresents the character and deceives people. Now, you need to understand that Satan is not stupid. Satan's been watching the growth of this church for the past several weeks. Ever since Pentecost, hundreds and hundreds and even thousands and thousands of people have been coming to faith in Christ. And Satan's been watching this and his first line of attack is external persecution, right? He gets the Jewish leadership to jail Peter and John. He gets them to threaten them. As a matter of fact, he's actually going to scourge them and flog them here pretty soon. And ultimately, he will kill them. So Satan's using external persecution to try and slow down the growth of Jesus Christ's church. But it backfires on him. The more persecution takes place, the more the gospel spreads, right? The bigger the church becomes. The more pure the church becomes. Persecution doesn't work the way Satan wanted. It actually strengthens the church and strengthens the witness of the church to the world. So Jesus' church is growing and Satan's losing ground. And if the church keeps growing at this rate, Satan's going to lose souls for hell and more people are going to go to heaven. So Satan figures out he's going to have to go to church himself. You know that Satan attends church? Say yes. yes. Right? 
Do you know there are demons attend church? Some of them were on your shoulder this morning. Guaranteed. You don't think they're going to tempt you in church? That's where they tempt you the most, right? You know where they tempt me the most? When we're singing worship. Why? Satan can't stand it when God gets praise. Why? He wants praise. He's an egomaniac. Of course he's going to tempt you in church. He'd love to get you in a fight with your spouse and your kids and your grandkids before you get here. Right? That's a good strategy, right? Distract them so that they'll be all upset with each other before they come to worship. What does that do to your ability to worship? It kind of fogs it, right? So Satan's, of course, going to tempt you in church. And, of course, he's going to attend church to do that. But when Satan goes to church, he doesn't go to church to learn. He goes to church to lie. He goes to church to deceive. So Ananias is standing before Peter. He's put down this giant gift from the sale of property and he expects to be praised for giving this generous gift. And the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that Ananias is what? Lying. Because Ananias' heart is filled with, what does it say in your text? Filled with, it says it in your text. He's filled with Satan, right? Why has Satan filled your heart? So Ananias has opened himself up to satanic influence and deception. And you say, how in the world can a Christian open themselves up to satanic influence? Now, you can't be possessed by Satan if you're a believer. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. But you certainly can be uh, influenced. Scripture says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan is always on the hunt. Can Satan be defeated? Of course. James 4, 7. Write it down. You'll need this for your cross-reference. James 4, 7 says, here's how, you're, here's how you beat Satan. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What's the first thing you have to do? Submit to God, and then and only then will you have the supernatural power necessary to resist the devil. One of the reasons Satan conquers too many people is because we're trying to fight him in our own strength, right? And Ephesians 6 says, if you want to do battle with Satan, what? Put on the whole armor of God. You know how many Christians go to battle with Satan? They're in their bathrobes. They're wearing their pajamas. They don't have the armor of God on. They come back and they get all bloodied up and you go, well, yeah, you put on the sword of the spirit, you put on the helmet of salvation, you put on the shield of faith. Well, no, I just thought I'd go to Afghanistan with a bathrobe on. You know, if you're going to go into battle, you need to be equipped. That's why we have the armor of God, Ephesians 6. This couple has not put on the armor of God. This couple has not submitted themselves to God. So Satan, the father of lies, has influenced them to lie, and they fell for it. And Jesus predicted this in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus told his disciples that Satan would come along and plant tares, that's weeds, plant weeds in the farmer's field of wheat, right? Now, farmers have, re have real problems with weeds that look like wheat, right? How do you know which one to pull out? As a matter of fact, it's pretty hard to tell. Back in that period of time, the actual weed referred to here is the bearded dardanelle. The bearded dardanelle is a plant that looks virtually identical to a wheat plant until almost harvest time. 
You can't tell them apart until virtually the harvest time. The bearded Darnell plant contains a fungus. If you ingest this fungus, it will intoxicate you, it will hinder your speech, it'll make you unsteady on your feet, it'll produce drowsiness, it can lead to convulsions, and it will seriously make you stupid. The bearded Darnell plant is a picture of what sin does to you. Does sin make you wise or make you stupid? Of course it makes you stupid, right? And it cripples you. So when Jesus said Satan's going to come by and plant weeds in the wheat field, everybody knew what he was talking about because this bearded Dardanelle plant was a real problem. Jesus said the only way you're going to deal with it is at the harvest time you can tell them apart and that's when you separate them. But in the meanwhile, they're growing together. Now you need to understand in the church, the weeds are the hypocrites. The weeds that look like wheat are the hypocrites. Hypocrites are people who talk like Christians, look like Christians, but in reality they are only superficially committed to Christ. You know why weeds are a big problem? I grew up on a farm. Weeds in a field steal the water, right? Weeds in a field steal the sunlight. They grow and they steal the sunlight from the plants that need it, and they steal nutrients from the soil. So weeds actually choke out a crop. What Satan does is he uses hypocrites in the church to weaken the church and poison the church. Now the word hypocrite is a Greek word that comes from the theater, the stage theater. In the Greek theater during that time, an actor or an actress would play multiple roles, right? When they played a specific character, they'd always put on a mask that reflected that character. So hypocrite literally means an actor on a stage. How many of you ever been to vaudeville? Been to a vaudeville show? What does the villain always wear? A black mask. I mean, it's pretty obvious who the villain is. We were, I was flipping through channels the other day and I saw some old cowboy movies, some old westerns from the 50s. And they were really stereotyped. Remember the old western movies from the 50s? The good guys always wore the white hats and the bad guys always wore the black hats. You never saw a good guy with a beard. Right, only the bad guys had the beard. So it was pretty obvious, it's stereotyped at that point in time. And what we're looking at here is, that's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite wears a mask. A hypocrite wears a mask depending on the role they're playing. It means the real character you don't know. All you know is the mask. See, the goal of a stage actor is to do what? The goal of an actor on a stage is to win applause from the audience, right? So they will do whatever the audience wants. If the audience changes, you know what the actor does? Put on a different mask. Plays a different character. Anything for the applause. So a hypocrite is a pretender. A hypocrite is a poser. Someone who lives behind a mask. Who's the ultimate poser? Satan is the ultimate poser. He poses as an angel of light, Scripture says, in order to deceive people. So hypocrites are people who on Sunday, they wear their pious holy mask. On Monday morning, they put on their taking care of business mask, right? And on Friday nights, they put on their party mask. You know people like that, right? You and I were people like that. Jesus' strongest words of condemnation in scripture were to the hypocrites that were Israel's religious leaders. Here's why God is so upset with hypocrisy. A hypocrite paints a false picture of what God is like and what God's people is like. God is truth, right? And God's people must also be truthful. 
When those who claim to follow Christ live like the world, people conclude that there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians, right? What's the difference? You all live the same way. So if Christians are phony, then Christianity must not be true. So they can reject Jesus, and if they reject Jesus, where do they wind up? With Satan, straight in hell. So hypocrisy is really a matter of life and death, and Peter is calling out Ananias for his hypocrisy because Ananias and Sapphira have planned to deceive. That's the whole strategy. Verse 4, Peter explains a little more. He says, Ananias, while this land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Here's the principle. It's a lie to pretend to honor God when you are really pursuing the praise of people. It is a lie to pretend to honor God when you are really pursuing the praise of people. Now, I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. The Jerusalem church is really struggling. They've got thousands of people who are depending on them for basic food, clothing, and shelter because they're visitors from foreign countries. It's a brand new church. People are from time to time selling property and bringing donations to the church to provide for those needs. You're the apostle Peter, and this guy Ananias shows up with a very generous gift and lays it at your feet. Now, if you were not a person of integrity, what would you do? You would probably say, thank you, my son. We need this money. It's a generous gift. We appreciate it. Blah, 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 blah. It'd be really tempting to overlook this. The Holy Spirit tells Peter, this guy's a liar, and I want you to call him out on it. In front of God and everybody, right? This is in church. And he comes and puts the gift down. He's expecting praise. And God says, this guy's a liar. Call him out on it. Does Peter do that? He does. He's obedient. Most pastors, I'm not saying most, I would say some pastors would say nothing. Peter's obedient. Peter says, look, Ananias, you didn't have to sell the property. There's no command for you to sell the property. It's your property. If you want to keep it, keep it. You're free to do that. By the way, and even if you sold it, you don't have to give away anything. There's no obligation for you to sell the property. There's no obligation for you to give any money away. It's all yours. That's fine. Keep it. You give because you want to, not because you have to. Here's the problem. Ananias and Sapphira wanted it both ways. Here's what Ananias and Sapphira wanted to do. They wanted the praise of the people for donating all the proceeds. They wanted people to go... Ooh, they gave it all away. Wow, aren't they spiritual? And at the same time, they wanted to keep some of the money for themselves. So they were seeking the praise of people and they wanted to hang on to some of the cash at the same time. See, they were not giving because they wanted Jesus to receive the praise of the people. They were giving because they wanted to receive the praise of themselves. There's no proverb that says you cannot glorify Jesus Christ and yourself at the same time. Write it down. You cannot glorify Jesus Christ in yourself at the same time. You have to choose. This couple were glory hounds. 
They wanted to be the center. They wanted the attention of the people, church family. They wanted the praise and they wanted the money. So here's the solution. Here's what they did. You publicly promise to the apostles that you're going to give it all. You say, whatever this property sells for, I'm going to give 100% to the church. You publicly make that declaration. And everybody goes, ooh, right? You're a spiritual Christian. You're giving all of this money away. They got the praise. But they want to keep some of the proceeds back because they want the money for themselves. Now, in order to make that work, they have to lie. Right? How does God feel about lying? How does God feel about lying? He, what's the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness, right? Here's why they were lying. Here's how they were lying. They were lying because they were giving to God in order to be praised by people. They were giving to God in order to be praised by people. How do you think God felt about that? Yeah, they're hypocrites. They're wearing a mask and they're lying to God's people. Jesus warned against hypocritical giving in Matthew 6, 2. Matthew 6, 2. He's talking to his disciples and he says, by the way, when you give money, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, I have their reward in full. But when you give alms, when you make your donations, do not your left hand know what the right hand is doing, that your giving might be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will pay you. Here's the picture, and it's pretty nauseating. When these religious leaders were going to give a gift in the synagogue, they would literally carry the money bags, and they would have a trumpet player in front of them. Right? Big audience, right? And they would walk in, big procession, and they would dump the money in this metal container to go clank, 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 clank. It's like you getting a tuba, right? A tuba, put it on a stand, and drop the coins in. I mean, it makes a big noise because they wanted what? The praise of the people. I mean, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so generous. You know, you're worthy of our adoration because you're such a giving person, right? Who gets the praise? Whose ego goes out of sight? Who's pushing God out of the way? The synagogue is about the worship of who? Wasn't it the worship of God, not the worship of me? So Jesus is pointing this out. He says, these religious hypocrites are giving for the praise of man, not the glory of God. And we go, how nauseating. And we do exactly the same thing. You know what we do today? When someone makes a major donation, we call a press conference, right? We inscribe their name on a stone plaque someplace. We interview them on television. Now, I'm not judging the hearts of the people who are doing that. But be very, very, very careful when you give not to do it for the praise of people. I've often thought that um, there should be a a signature required to accept lottery winnings. You had to agree, number one, that you would forever remain anonymous. And number two, you had to agree to give it all away. I think it would be safer for the people that got the money if they were, number one, forced to give it all away and no one ever knew that they had it. 
because the vast majority of people that win the lottery or a major medical malpractice suit, it usually winds up ruining their lives. You've got divorces, you've got drug abuse, you've got, I mean, it's a huge problem. All you need to do is read biographies of these people. It's really a mess. But the key issue here that God is saying is, whose praise are you seeking? Whose opinion matters to you? If human opinion is more important than God's opinion, then you are going to be a hypocrite. You will wear a mask, right? And God hates hypocrisy because it's lying. It's lying. Peter points out, you know, you read this and you go, oh, it seems to me that, you know, Ananias is lying to Peter. He's lying to the church. Not true. Verse 3 says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Chapter, uh, the same chapter, verse 4 says, Peter says, you have not lied to man, you've lied to God. And this is the part that terrifies me. Peter says, Ananias, when you lie to God's people, you are lying to me. When you lie to God's people, you're lying to God. You know why? Who lives inside each one of God's people? God. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. So when you lie to somebody, a brother or sister, you're lying to God. Because the Holy Spirit lives in that person. Now that should make you pucker up because these two got killed for it. God really is serious about truth. He says, Ananias, when you lie to the church, you're lying to God. When you lie to God's people, you're lying to God. Verse 5 says, As soon as Ananias heard these words, he what? Fell down and breathed his last, and what? Great fear came upon all those who heard of it. I guess so, right? Here's the principle. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. See, Peter rebuked Ananias, but God executed his judgment on Ananias. I really expect that Peter was surprised when Ananias fell down dead. I bet he was, you know, because God didn't reveal to him, I'm taking this guy's life, right? He just, Peter said, I'm pronouncing rebuke to you for deceiving the church, but God is the one who took his life. God is holy, and he's called you and I to be holy because he is holy. See, lying, hypocrisy, is deadly in God's church. So deadly that God takes Ananias' life on the spot. Follow this. I want to give you a word picture. Sin is like the Ebola virus. The Ebola virus is two things. It's deadly. It will kill you. And it's highly contagious. Right? So what do we do with people with Ebola? We quarantine them. So they don't reinfect others and kill other people. God chose to quarantine Ananias in heaven. So he wouldn't do any more damage to his body. When the cancer of sin spreads, it can destroy the whole body. Better to surgically remove a malignant tumor in the body than to have the cancer spread and kill the whole body. Right? You following me? Now what does Jesus Christ say the church is? His body, his bride. 
Jesus Christ will protect his body, his bride, from anyone that will harm her, including members of that body. How many of you would tell the doc, you know, I know I've got a tumor in me, I know it's going to kill me, but that tumor's part of me, and I don't want you to take it away. I like my tumor. This tumor's part of me. I have a relationship with this tumor. I've known this tumor for a long time. How many would say that? Or how many would say, no, you know, I think that my life is more important than this tumor. Kill the tumor so I can live. Would you say that? Jesus Christ's body, his bride is the church, and there is an Ebola virus in this body, and it's called Ananias and Sapphira, who are lying and deceiving his people as well as attempting to lie to God. God says, if I don't correct this, Satan gets a foothold inside my body and kills it. You know what the solution is? I'm going to quarantine these two. I'm taking them out of the body so they don't damage it. They can't do any damage in heaven. See, sometimes Jesus disciplines and corrects his children with suffering and sorrows and trials and disciplines here on earth in this life. Sometimes Jesus decides that one of his children is doing so much damage to his spiritual family, it's time to quarantine that child in heaven. And he takes him home. And you look at that and people say, well, that's not quite my view of God. Well, it's what scripture says about God. He is holy and he takes sin very, very seriously. And I have seen this happen. Where people are in heaven because of their behavior. And they're in heaven. They're Christians. But God says, you are doing too much damage to my body because you will not repent. And I've brought discipline in your life and you still haven't repented. So I'm taking you home. God is going to have a pure church. And he will cleanse his church in his way and in his time. The point is, don't take God's holiness for granted. We should all tremble before a holy God. Verse 6. The young men arose, covered Ananias up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, this is a warm climate. This is Palestine. And in warm climates, you buried people the same day, right? The very same day. You know something that's missing from this? There's no funeral service. There's no eulogy. There's no mourning. There's no coffin. There's no candles. There's no songs. He's dead, and he's in the ground in three hours. Wow. You always buried people outside the city walls, usually in caves or carved out hillsides, because there's no graves inside the city, because decay could spread. You wanted dead bodies outside the city. Reminds me of the story of Achan. How many of you are familiar with Joshua? Jericho, the walls of Jericho, right? Well, God tells Joshua, conquer the city of Jericho. God knocked down the wall of Jericho so that Israel could conquer the city. And because God had given them the victory, God had knocked down the wall. Everything inside that city was what? Devoted to God. So God had told the children of Israel, everything inside that city is under the ban, which means you are banned from laying your hands on it. Everything in that city, the gold, the silver, the iron, everything valuable, you bring to the tabernacle to me as an act of worship because I'm responsible for you getting in that city and conquering it. Everything else has to be destroyed. There was a son of Israel named Achan. He saw some gold, some silver, and a fine cloak from Shinar. It was an expensive imported coat, and he got greedy. And he began to covet, 
and he decided that no one would know if he took them for himself and buried them in the floor of his tent and didn't bring them to the tabernacle. Big problem. He was stealing from who? He was stealing from who? Like God would never know you were trying to pick his pocket? Really? Did you really think that God wouldn't know that you didn't steal from him? He's the one who said, bring everything to the tabernacle. Don't let it wind up in your safe, right? Belongs to me. It was such an in-your-face rebellion. I mean, Ananias was to that to God. I mean, it was just in your face that God commanded Achan be stoned to death to purge the evil from Israel. You know, when God gives a command, obedience is not an option. Write that one down. When God gives a command, obedience is not an option. They're called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. You might think about not killing each other. You might think about telling the truth. By the way, adultery is an option, but I wouldn't recommend it. That's not what God says. God says, no. Ten Commandments. Only ten. Only ten. Obedience is not just the one of many choices on God's agenda. It's the only acceptable response to God because he's God. God gives us these laws, these rules, because he loves us. I mean, how many of you tell your children, by the way, it's an option. I wouldn't recommend it, but if you wanted to play kickball in the middle of the freeway, that's your call. I trust your judgment. Really? You know, that's like giving your kids loaded 22s and saying, well, try and be safe. Uh-huh, probably not going to happen. Some things you should say no, right, for their own good. God loves us, and so he does that for us. Verse 7. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. I guess she didn't have an iPhone. She doesn't know he's been dead for three hours. Apparently, no one thought to tell her. Now, let me tell you, if someone got struck dead in our church in the middle of a service, I don't know that anybody would move. I'm serious. I would hope we'd be on our face praying. Because when God moves like that, he's moving and he's God. I would hope we'd be praying. So three hours later, she comes in, she's expecting praise, and she's met with a very interesting question. Verse 8. Peter responded to her saying, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. What's wrong with this picture? Peter's giving her the opportunity to tell the truth. You ever done that to your kid? Do you, want to, do you want to rethink that? Do you want to come around and try, try that again? Sometimes your children stay with the same story. And they must know that you know that they're lying, right? Sometimes they go, well, I, let, let, it didn't quite happen just like I said. Let, let me kind of modify that. That would have been a really good answer. She didn't do that. She said, yes, that was the price. You know what she should have asked? I wonder why Peter's asking me this question. Why is he asking me this question? You know, another really good question would have been, where's Ananias? 
I don't see him anywhere. Right? I mean, you know, common sense says, you know, when you're asked a question, one of the things you ask yourself is, why am I getting asked this question? Before you open your mouth, right? But she, like her husband, had been deceived by Satan into thinking that they could successfully lie to God. You know, their lying makes no sense when you think about it. They had both seen supernatural miracles for the last couple of months. They'd seen the Holy Spirit working through Peter. They'd seen Peter healing through the power of the Holy Spirit. They'd witnessed the filling of the Spirit the first day. They'd heard the sermons. They'd seen thousands of people come to Christ. God's power is on full display, and they still think that they can be greedy and successfully lie to God. You know, and we look and we go, man, sin makes you stupid, and you would be right. And yet it's terribly easy to condemn them, and yet when we look in the mirror... How many of you have ever tried to lie to God? How many of you have ever done a deed and you thought that God didn't see it? If you thought that God saw it, why did you do it? Right? I mean, he sees everything, right? He hears everything. He knows everything. He knows our motives. Anytime we live life without a conscious awareness that God sees all, knows all, we're deceiving ourselves, just like they did. Anytime we treat sin casually, we're deceiving ourselves. And my major sin is never behavioral. Brad Hannock's major sin is always motives. Always motives. It's always motives. I do good things for the wrong reasons. You ever done that before? There's a good deed. Who's going to get the glory for the good deed? If the motive is that Brad gets the glory instead of Jesus gets the glory, you know something? It's a sin. Because I'm stealing his glory. Everything we do is for the glory of God, not for the glory of us. Amen? Okay. Verse 9. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. Whoa. Verse 10. And she fell immediately to his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. You know, God doesn't mess around. He deals with sin with great seriousness. Because he's extended mercy, many people think they can play around with it. Peter says, why have you put the spirit of the God to the test? You know what putting the spirit of the Lord to the test is? It's trying to see how far you can go in disobeying God before he takes action. Now that's very, very dangerous and very, very foolish. I'll tell you how stupid it is. You don't play around with sin because playing around with sin is like playing around with a rattlesnake. You play around with the rattlesnake long enough, what is certainly going to happen? You are going to get bit. We're only talking when, not if. If you play around with sin long enough, it's going to bite you. And I know many people that think, I'm too smart for that. No, you're not. You play with sin, there's consequences. Even more importantly than that, if we love Jesus, why would we want to play around with sin? What's the point? 
the lie of Satan that sins bring pleasure. The reality is sin always brings pain. It's just a question of when it shows up. So Peter calls her out, calls her sin, and pronounces God's judgment on her. Boom. Now, verse 11 has got to be one of the great understatements in the Bible. This has got to be one of them. It says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You think? I think so. Right? This is, by the way, this is very appropriate response to the judgment of God. This is holy fear because this is a proper view of God. Most of us don't live like this, but you and I right now are one heartbeat away from standing before God and giving an account of our lives. One heartbeat away. Some of you might be giving an account before lunch. And you say, well, I hope it's not me. Well, that's up to the Lord, right? So the Holy Spirit puts this in Scripture as a warning to us to take God seriously and take sin seriously and take truth-telling seriously and ask God to cleanse our motives so we wind up not giving money to God in order to buy the praise of people because that's exactly what they were doing. Whose praise are you seeking? Let's summarize. <clears throat> in the family of God, we is more important than me. And see, Barnabas is a good example of that. You really need to look at the life of Barnabas. He's really a, a, a spiritual hero because he understands service above self and it's all about Jesus and not me. Second point, what would your name be if it reflected your dominant character trait? That's a pretty useful question. What would I be called if people called me based on what I did? How I normally behave? What would they call me? Number three, God hates hypocrisy because it misrepresents his character. You give people a false view of God and it deceives people both in the church and out of the church. Tell the truth. It is a lie to pretend to honor God when you're really pursuing the praise of people. And God takes sin extremely seriously. And so should we. Now the key with that last phrase is you want to see yourself as Jesus sees you. One of the great comforts of the cross of Jesus Christ is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Amen. But we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when you sin, what do you do? You take out your spiritual bar of soap. 1 John 1, 9 says what? If we confess our sins, now that's not hypocrisy, that's being honest to God. That's not saying, God, I didn't... Uh, Lord, I, I know, I, I kind of whitewashed that a little bit. No, it was a lie. Just call it like it is, right? If we confess our sins, if we agree with God about our behavior, confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How often should you do that? Only once every 24 hours? Wow. Whenever your consciousness of sin... Which means one of the things to do is say, Lord, open my eyes. Show me where I'm screwing up so that I can confess it and be cleansed from it. So you don't have to live with the consequences of refusal. That's our great hope. The cross of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Okay. I love you guys. Now that you know, 